Thank you very much. And I've alluded to this a bit in my earlier talk, so, um, but I would like to give a bit more information about our global resource for online evidence-based medicine learning. And you've heard, you know, it said before at this conference and other places, what is evidence-based veterinary medicine? And just to kind of make it clear that the team that came together to, to work on this said, all right, what do we think? Well, we think it has to do with the evidence. We also think it has to do with the patient and client values, as well as clinical expertise of veterinarians. So all of those things rolling together as evidence-based veterinary medicine, and that those components are also very important. We wanted to be able to bring that out in teaching this and creating something for veterinarians to use, and we wanted it to be an open-source uh, learning platform for people who were familiar or weren't and wanted to learn more or weren't familiar with evidence-based veterinary medicine to, to learn a bit more. And really kind of a consensus of the group that built this was what, why do we need evidence-based veterinary medicine? Well, it helps us to make better decisions and to differentiate truth from luck. So if we've just always treated something that way and it's always gotten better because it was always going to get better anyway, then that maybe not be the, may not be the best source of truth. Um, it may just be that we've gotten lucky all those times that we've done it. So therefore also to reduce the errors that we're making when we're when we um, maybe are unsure if we have some evidence to buoy up our decisions, and being confident about client consent as well, so giving us information, and, and we talk to students and we talk to veterinarians about this. You know, if you have some evidence, your, your clients will often be asking for that, and so it's useful, it's useful to be able to lay out some of the risks, some of the prior information that we might know about, you know, your dog is extremely sick, therefore it's less likely to... Uh, recover or it's not that sick and so we expect things to go fine except for a small number of cases to give some sort of prior information and also to deal with it with communicating uncertainty and this is something that we all embrace as well that sometimes we just don't know and sometimes we're working together to find answers even with our clients and ultimately that using evidence-based veterinary medicine can lead to improved animal care. And realizing as well that it can be tough to do this. So in practice, our actions are often constrained by the agenda of our client and that maybe the amount of money that they have to spend or the things that they come in, the bias, the values, as Enta just talked about, that they come into that question, into that consulting room or onto that farm or et cetera uh, with and what they want from us. And that's sometimes hard to know. And some of the work we're doing at Bristol is, is teaching veterinarians to ask that sometimes and to say, what is your motivation? And, and I was struck by this when I took my coughing son to the doctor and who I've seen a number of times before with said coughing son. And she just said, what, what do you want me to do? And I was a bit taken aback because I'd never had a GP ask me that before. And I thought, oh, wait, what do I want you to do? Well, I just want you to tell me that he's not going to end up in the hospital on Saturday. This was Friday night. So she can't really do that, but that's what I wanted. So, and that's all she needed to give me really to get me out of the consulting room. Um, but that also things that we can do are, are limited by our time, our money, or the client's money and time, the resources that we have, access, and access to evidence as well, availability of the evidence. If it's not published, if it's not open, if it's not out there for us to find, then we, we can't really do anything with it. Um, and if it doesn't exist, then we certainly don't have anything to go on. And also our, our clinical uncertainties. So sometimes, and was talked about earlier this morning, what's the diagnosis and how well we know that and how sometimes we, we don't know that, how uncertain we are. 
for actually what it even is we're treating versus what we would go on and, and treat. And then our skill base, the things that we're capable of doing and able to do, even if we would like to be able to do high-level surgery, perhaps we're not trained to do that and unable to do that. So to address some of these things, and because we got some funding kindly from our CVS Knowledge to create an online evidence-based veterinary medicine learning tool, um, it, here it is, eBVM Learning. And if you have a, a, a device that you could look up the website, I would encourage you to look at it along with me while we go through and give some feedback and say what you think about, I like this, I don't like this, etc. cetera, um, because we want it to be used by as many people as possible. So it's fantastic to have, have that feedback and to hear from you even right now what you think of it. What does this online tool do? Well, it, we wanted it, we're very keen for it to provide open source learning, so available to anybody with an internet connection, basically. I know it's in English, so you do have to be able to, to speak English unless Google Translate. I don't know how it does with translating it into other languages. Um, but to be out there and being o an open tool that's available for everybody who wants to use it. It also aligns with existing resources, and this was something that the team was quite keen that it not be us trying to force everything into one website, but to recognize that there's a wealth of good information out there, and we'd like to be able to point people to other places and also to leave the door open for new things that, that are uh, coming out in order to, to buoy up this, this area, really. So we definitely wanted it to align with what was out there. And also really, and I spoke about this in my earlier talk, to build a community of practice, to be able to have the chance to get people together of like mind that are working in these areas, often don't have a lot of time to cross over and to really bang heads together and say, what do you think a cohort study is? And what about you? And what about that? And to share that information and really work together to create something that we could all be proud of and was very useful to all of us and that we could put out there and be quite happy with. So the consortium that we brought together to create this tool, as you can see, a lot of um, infamous or famous or well-known people in this area, kind of people that are really pushing the boundaries of what evidence-based veterinary medicine is and developing tools and developing methodologies and doing training and doing teaching themselves. So really, it was really great to work with all these people, somebody from all of the UK vet schools, as well as North American schools and European schools as well, and really gave a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and time, unpaid time to work on this because they are really passionate and they do really care about having a resource that's out there that's available to the public. And that's a picture of the team looking very happy. This was after we launched the resource, so they knew their work was done for the time being. Um, but yeah, really a lot of thanks, a lot of gratitude to the people that worked so hard on this. And we divided up into teams, and people wrote different chapters and proofread different things and said, we can't have that American spelling in there, et cetera. Um, but yeah, lots of work by this group. What the resource does is it takes learners through the five steps of evidence-based veterinary medicine. So first, how do we ask a specific clinical question? Then how do we acquire the evidence that we might need to answer that question? How do we then appraise that evidence for its quality so that we can say, all right, how good is this study and how and, and do we want to include it or do we want to take that at, at face value? Then how do we go about applying that to our practice if we want to make some changes in our own personal practice or in our corporate practice? Uh, how do we, what are some suggestions for how we might do that? And then how do we continue to get better? So how do we assess once we've made some changes that that's actually improving things or not improving things? How do we look at clinical outcomes and say, are we doing better than we were the last time? Because that's what this should be all about. 
The first chapter then is the ABCs. We need to start, I guess, with laying a little bit of groundwork for people that might not be familiar with this area. So we thought, because we have to have another A uh, with the other five A's, we'd call it the ABCs of EBVM. And this really just introduces what is evidence-based veterinary medicine, why is it important, how does it apply to me, and what are some of the challenges? We want it to be real with learners and say, we recognize that this is not uh, the easiest thing to do. And here are some of the challenges that you might face, one being that there isn't a lot of evidence sometimes when you go looking for it. Um, and also to provide some signposts for who is doing this around the world so that they could, again, check out their resources and have other contacts of people that they could talk to and work with that might be in their country uh, and, and doing some of this work actively. We start off this section then with a little story from human medicine about James Lind and how he cured scurvy on the high seas, just to give learners a little bit of uh, engagement and something that they can relate to and see that this isn't something brand new, although it's evolving and it's changing, it isn't something that we just invented. This has been going on for, for a long time, and we wanted to, to be able to talk about that a bit. And then we introduce them to these five um, steps of evidence-based veterinary medicine in the first chapter. Then it goes on to ask, and in this chapter we cover why it's important to ask questions. Why should we be doing this as veterinarians? Is this part of what we are doing professionally, and how does that help us? And what we decided to do was to break it down a bit to the different types of questions that vets might come across in clinical practice. And those were questions of treatment, which treatment should I use, questions of prognosis and incidence of disease, questions of etiology and risk of disease, questions of diagnosis, and questions of prevalence. So we break things down, and you'll see as I go into the appraise section, we also then talk about what types of studies um, can be used to answer these questions, so that goes through. And then we teach learners as well how to format their questions in, into, in a PICO search, because that's a, a fairly standardly accepted way to formulate these questions, but we also give a nod to PICOT and SPICOT and all of the other different ways that you might formulate questions, but we, and we talk about that they're out there, but we really use this as a bit of a paradigm for learning in this tool. And we try to give lots of examples. I'm a bovine vet. I wanted to have lots of cows in there. But the equine people said, no, we have to have some horses. And we have to have some lizards and some pigs. And we have to represent all of these species in order to make it accessible to learners as much as possible and to give them something that they could all, you know, if you read through the whole thing as a cat vet and it only talked about cows, you wouldn't engage very much. So really to make it useful for all the people, all, all veterinarians across the profession. We try to give lots of real-life examples as well. And this one I think I have to read off the big screen. But So in equine medicine, rather than asking, what should I do about recurring, recurrent, recurring, recurrent laryngeal neuropathy in horses, I see in my practice. So that's how students and how some people might think about, all right, this is the question, what should I do? Well, it's a very difficult question to answer. But if we break it down a bit more and we, we make it a bit more pointed by saying, in adult racing thoroughbred horses presenting with recurrent laryngeal neuropathy, so there's our population that we're thinking about, does ventric ventriculectomy or a Hobday procedure with ventriculocordectomy, so one of our interventions that we might choose to do, compared with prosthetic laryngoplasty or a tieback, so a comparative uh, intervention that we might do, have a greater success rate for return to racing, and that's our outcome. But you could ask a different question and be just as right. It's not right or wrong. It's just how you choose to phrase the question. Would you ask if these two different procedures 
have uh, result in a greater reduction in air turbulence. So a different outcome, and when you search that different outcome, you may find different information, but if that's what you're really interested in, then you need to be clear that that's the question you're asking, not just what should I do, because an amorphous question gives a fairly amorphous answer, but if we can be more pointed, then we can actually say there is evidence for this or there isn't evidence for this, hopefully as well as we can. And we do we're, we go through the, the patient, the population, or the problem, and how we frame that, particularly in veterinary medicine as opposed to human medicine, um, how we talk about these interventions, treatment, be it they treatment, prognostic factors, exposures, et cetera, and then these comparators, a comparison or a control group that we're comparing against our intervention, and then this outcome. In the second chapter, then, we were very much helped by the librarians, who I see are still in attendance because they love it so much. And there, maybe there's a library session at the moment. Um, but really thinking about where do we find this evidence? How do we identify your information sources? And what does that mean? What are these different uh, databases? What do they index? What do they provide? What are you finding when you search these so that learners really understand maybe some of the bias that exists in what's out there in the published literature, what's indexed by different databases and what they're going to find if they use Google Scholar that doesn't tell us uh, exactly which, uh, which um, journals they're indexing versus something like Cab Abstracts, which covers a lot of the veterinary literature and tells us what it's covering, just to make sure that they know that. So how do we find those um, and, find, and then find the evidence? So first of all, how do we get access? So by joining the RCBS library or by going through BSAVA or having other memberships or paying ourselves for the ability to use these databases or using free freeware that then comes with its own caveats. And then how do we manage these search results? So how do, we, how do we reference, how do we report these so that, like good science, they can be repeatable and other people can see what we did. It's very open, transparent, and clear and can repeat that and get the same results that we did with the, with the search strategies so that some of these uh, assumptions or some of the, the way we chose to phrase our question or what we were looking at is very clear. And I get students a lot of times that say, well, this, I, this was not a good paper, because it didn't answer the student's question. Well, if it answered the researcher's question validly, then it is a good paper whether or not it answered my question or the student's question. But if it's, if it's not reported well, then I can't really tell if it's good or not. And we do provide a lot about doing a database search, and I talked about this earlier as well. There are these pop-out boxes whereby we didn't want people to be frightened when they first looked at this and saw a long table of all the different terms, and oh my goodness, this is going to take me a long time. So if they were just going to skim it and read it, then maybe they didn't want to see all of that detail. But actually, we found with some of our beta testers that then when they sat down on the computer, if they'd never done this before and wanted to do a search on Medline, they thought, oh, I'm not really how do I type this in? And when do I use those Boolean operators to click the and or the or? And do I need an asterisk here or a, a dollar sign? So we tried to give them that detail, but maybe not overload them with it initially. And there was lots of discussion about how we should do this. But in the end, we wanted to make sure that we had everything that people would need in order to be able to do this, but maybe not scare them away too soon before they even made it through the rest of this chapter to see that, that it is possible for them to do. We also present a lot about how to report these searches as well and showing them how to use flowcharts and how to make sure that information is there and how what sorts of guidelines to, to explain that, explain why certain papers were kept in or were kept out so that, again, so that's very clear and people can see the assumptions that were made in going through doing these sorts of searches to create an evidence synthesis. 
And we move on to the third chapter, which is appraising the literature that's out there. And we talk a bit about why it's necessary to appraise things, why we have to think about what we've been told. Just because you saw it on TV, you can't always believe it, is what my mom said, right? Now it's the internet. What factors should be appraised, so what's important that we're thinking about and looking at when we're reading papers. And we again link to lots of tools that support appraisal. So the checklists that are on the RCVS website, a lot of the human medicine, so the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine and Center for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. Again, we didn't want to put, try to put everything in one website because that would just get over to just be too much. But we wanted to link and show that there are lots of different places, lots of different ideas about checklists that learners can potentially use. And again, we, we broke it down into these different five sorts of questions and the way that example, so we have the, the type of question that you might ask, the example question that covers a number of species, and then some of the, the study types that answer these questions. And we kind of did that in a flip way as well. So then we have the different questions, and then we listed out all the different study types. And you'll see that systematic reviews um, and meta-analyses are at the, the top of these. So when we're bringing that evidence together, and again, we're not talking in this table, but we do address in the praise chapter about the validity of these, of these studies. So a systematic review might appear very high, but if it's poorly done, then it might, you know, a uh, cohort study or maybe even a case report may give you a bit more information than a poorly done systematic review. So being able to, to really rank those and say what sorts of evidence is out there, what can we be using? Then we have a bit about applying, and as I said before, we found that this was quite difficult, that there wasn't a lot out there that people had published or people had talked about. How are we doing that in practice? And it's nice to come to meetings like this where people are presenting more of that, and it's getting out there, and ideas, good ideas are being shared so that best practice can be shared around. Um, but what we kind of agreed on and present in this chapter is that implement, implementation can often be the most difficult thing. How do you really get this from your head knowledge and the work that you've done or a written or published? Uh, and there's, there's some stats about how many publications actually ever get cited, academic publications that anybody ever reads, right? Put papers out there and you wonder, does anybody, you're the one that read that paper or not? Um, so how, how do we make this happen where the rubber meets the road, as it were, and how do we make this important? What are the motivations behind uh, what research is done and then what's published and then how, what we're using in our practice and what are resources that practitioners might need to make these sorts of changes in their practice? We talk a lot about how applicable is the evidence that you're finding to actually your own practice and how do you judge that? What sorts of things do you think about for that external validity and how you're going to use that for the animal that's in front of you that needs treating? And then how do we share this evidence with our colleagues and clients? So do we just send an email? Do we convene some journal clubs so everybody can get together and discuss these things? Do we talk about them at clinical rounds? And really we, I think as a consortium, we believe that the more airtime this can get and the more we talk about this, the more we raise awareness, the better off we all are to be able to work together to solutions that work for our practice and uh, for the animals that we care for. And we discuss as well uh, strategies for change, that what 
at a personal level, if I want to make a change, how can I do that? And again, empowering younger vets, maybe vets that might not have so much experience to say, how can you speak to your colleagues and or your boss about this? How can you challenge some of these ideas? What's some of the power behind this uh, in your own clinic? So you can change maybe the way you do things, but actually if you want to use a different medicine that's kept on the shelf, then you might have to have some discussions with higher up people about how you might go about doing that. And how can we make practice changes as well and really decide this is the best thing that we can do as a practice. So thinking about the relevance of the evidence then and how do we really dig into that and say, right, what do I, what am I looking at and how do I know what animal I'm thinking about and how do I discuss? And we use quite a lot of examples in this as well, cases that we follow through about a vet that was thinking about, here's my question and I read this paper and I read this paper and how do I compare them in a real, real world fashion? And they don't always work out nice and tidily and easily because we didn't want to give the impression that this is really easy and it's always going to end up perfectly for you. And then preparing a strategy for change. Again, we try to give a fair menu of options to people to say, you know, because there isn't a lot of evidence so far about this or we couldn't find it when we built the tool, what are some of the options that are out there? And maybe we can keep some records and generate some evidence about, is it better to have a journal club? Is it better to have, send an email and have a, just a diktat, et cetera. And then the final chapter is about assessing. So how do we continually monitor what's going on? And we, we devote quite a bit of time to clinical audit. So thinking about monitoring, discussing clinical outcomes, acting on those results, and in a number of countries, including the UK, that's something that's becoming more widespread and more standardized. So how do we do that and how do we do that well? When we looked around at the time that we wrote this, there weren't very many practice guidelines that were in existence that we could find that were open and shared. So encouraging that, encouraging people to, to put it out there, this is what we're doing so that we can learn from one another and what we think works versus what might not work. And really just this idea of developing an ethos of EBVM, that it's okay to question things, it's okay to challenge ourselves, it's okay to look into this and actually generate some evidence, and we're doing quite a lot of work uh, with practitioners to help them to think about this, to help them to set this up, what's the ethical standpoints, how do we deal with some of these difficult problems, and even though it's not, even though it's not easy, it's useful, and I would like to encourage that, that and, and to be real with people that it isn't always going to be easy, but this is going to give us good answers, and it's going to help, help push all of us forward more quickly if we can do that. And then continually repeating this cycle of asking. So, so inevitably, as everybody here probably knows, you start to do, do some assessment of what you've done, and it generates more questions, which you then go back and search the literature for and acquire praise, etc. So it just goes round and round, but hopefully it's going round and round in an upward fashion. And thinking again about how are we doing this? How are we assessing this implementation in practice? So talking a bit about that. And we have a nice video that Mark Holmes made for us about clinical audit uh, and talking about what's going on at the moment in that arena. So that's, we also tried to use obviously different types of media. So written and some video, et cetera. And there are some interactive quizzes that people can take because people told us everybody, all vets like quizzes and they want to be able to test their knowledge if they read this, how well did I do. So we included those as well. So there's the testing for continuing professional development. We, we did have some discussions about could we have an online certificate that's printed or how can we grant CPD? But because it's an open access resource and every country has different ideas about how they document CPD, we decided just that it could be, certainly in the UK, it can be self-certification for CPD or education credits and allow the other organizations that audit that to make their own decision. But certainly we think it's, it's useful for learning for veterinary practitioners and veterinary nurses, et cetera. 
Uh, it's a standalone, so there are standalone flexible learning objects within it that can be taken out, and we really do encourage people to excerpt from the tool, to use it in their own teaching, to use it in delivering CPD, et cetera. As long as it's recognized, it's under um, an open access uh, it's open access that you can do that and extensive links again to send you other places. So if you, if you want to, to continue your learning, certainly it's not all done by the time you wrap up this, this resource, but there are lots of other links you can follow and other things you can go and continue to learn about this area. We did as well insert quite a lot of problem-based and self-directed learning to help people to develop skills. So we'll often ask, think about the last time you had a case of this sort and then as we go through the chapter, ask readers and learners to think about what, what decisions did you make and reflect on their own practice. Why did you make that decision? When were you happy about when you felt like you made really good decisions? And when were you unhappy about the way that you made decisions? And to try again to grow and to change in how they do that. And we have lots of case-based examples of applying this, again, that aren't always so cut and dried, but reveal kind of this is what goes on in the real world and how we might go about doing this. And a lot of this came just from the experience of the people on the team that said, yeah, we had this one case, we had this one uh, time when this happened, and, and I know of this going on in my husband's practice or something. Again, lots of links. We really wanted it to be a scaffold with lots of signposting, so to bring people to one place and then send them off to other places if they wanted to learn more, and more of a jumping-off point than really read this and then you're done. You know all there is to know about evidence-based veterinary medicine because clearly that, that won't be the case. So we wanted to really make people see why it's important and where else they can go to continue their learning. So, so far, we launched it in October of last year at the EBVM Skills Day, so it's been running for about a year, and we've had over seven, almost 8,000 visits, 30,000 page views by almost 6,000 users. So very happy with people sharing it on social media. A number of us are using, in, using it in our teaching, as I alluded to before, um, and it really has gotten a, a fairly good uptake of people. Um, most of the users are from the UK, but we've got large numbers from Russia, the US, Australia, the Netherlands, Brazil, Germany, so definitely places where there, were, there was nobody on the team um, from these countries, so it wasn't just their classes that are using it. So very nice to see that it's used, and we've got some good data from RCVS Knowledge to show where people are on certain pages, where they might be getting hindered, or where they might spend more time on to hopefully give us some feedback, to give us some evidence, to show where are the areas that we might want to be developing more, and there are members of the team that are using that sort of data in their own planning. So we're definitely keen to garner more feedback. So please log on, please use it, please share it with others. And there are there's the abil ability to add some feedback at the end of the tool. What did you think? What did you like? What could have been done better? We're talking with our CVS knowledge about how we maintain the site, how we keep it going, because obviously as time goes on, there are different things that change and more and more information that comes to light. And in fact, one of my colleagues has already said to me, it's really quantitative, Kristen. There's not anything about qualitative evidence. What about qualitative evidence? So those sorts of things can certainly be added. And as the field grows and changes, it needs to grow and change with the field. So we hope to expand it, maybe add a module about qualitative evidence or other suggestions about how we improve it so that it can, be, can keep up with the times and be a good resource for people would be very much welcomed. So really, we would like you guys and your colleagues to, to share it and use it and give us some feedback. 
question and challenge the ideas that are out there and the evidence that you see and generate new evidence as well. We're quite keen to have it added to specialist training and another sort of CPD arenas, so to internships, to residencies, and I talked about that, how we're doing that at Bristol a bit this morning, but also to other specialist training because it's important that people recognize uh, what needs to be done and it's completely cost-free and you can access it online. So if you can insert it into those sorts of trainings, we'd be happy for that. And really give us feedback and let us know what you think about it so that it can continue to grow and improve. And thank you very much for your time this afternoon.